Our guest on this episode believes that the post-COVID environment will usher in an era of consumer shopping for quality first, then cost, and he's written a book on the subject. How will this happen, and what does it mean for consumers and their plans? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. We love having guests who come back after a number of years, especially entertaining and intelligent guests. And that's the case today. Sanjay Prasad, who's the handsome man in the scrubs that you see on the screen, was on episode 176 back in August of 2017. And I'd recommend that you also listen to that episode because I think it will be kind of a good run-in to the evolution that brought us to the point where he's now written his new book called Resetting Healthcare, Post-COVID-19 Pandemic. By way of background, Dr. Prasad is a surgeon with 30 years in practice, and his mission beyond being an outstanding surgeon is to help patients connect with best-in-class surgeons who operate, and this is the key, in a cost-effective environment. And with that long-winded introduction, welcome back, Sanjay. Great to be back, David. Uh, 2017 seems like a generation ago. It does. When I was it's amazing. Baby, maybe, you know? <laughs> As you said earlier, we were both much younger then, and, but no less <laughs> handsome, so we'll press on. So, but, I mean, let's use that as a jumping-off point. What's changed in four years? What's changed since way back in 2017? Yeah, I mean, a lot has changed. You know, we all know that with the COVID pandemic. You know, we were in a certain state of healthcare in 2017. You know, employers were struggling with, you know, ridiculous premiums. Patients were struggling with high deductible health plans. That part has not changed. But, you know, the COVID pandemic obviously changed many lives, many families. You know, it was a horror for many families throughout the planet. But what happened in 2020 was interesting in the surgery realm, simply because surgeries were put on hold. I mean, patients were told they shouldn't come to the hospital, they shouldn't come go to the surgery center and have their surgery. They should wait, you know, if they have a, a breast biopsy scheduled or, you know, even a mammogram scheduled. They said, well, wait, you know, we don't want to run the risk of you getting coronavirus from entering a facility. It's the first time patients had ever really thought about that. You know, getting an infection from a facility. Oh, my gosh. Is that possible? But it is. I mean, we've known this for so long with MRSA and methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which was originally a hospital acquired that then came to the community. But now we were being told, and it was really impregnated in our minds, that you might actually get coronavirus from going to a facility and surgeries were really put on hold in 2020 and patients were scared, uh, no question. 
And of course, masking and, you know, the vaccine certainly helped. You know, we're still getting to the point where people are now getting their second shot, hopefully, and then we'll get their booster shots as well. But, you know, telemedicine took off in a very big way, David, as you know. All of a sudden, you could schedule virtual visits with your primary care doctor. Whoever thought that would happen? And now, you know, surgeons are looking at patients and and viewing patients and trying to get an examination through telemedicine. A lot has changed, David. A long-winded answer. Sorry. No, that's fine, because a lot has changed. Curious, though, I mean, we've, I've heard this before about surgeries being put off, and we all, I probably know somebody whose non-emergent surgery was put off. How did, beyond emergency cases, how did surgeons and facilities draw lines and say, okay, the risk here is worth coming in and having the surgery done because not having the surgery done is a bigger risk? What was that kind of deciding process like for you guys? Well, uh, the American College of Surgeons had put together a whole platform in terms of triaging certain kinds of conditions. Obviously, you know, if you had cancer, you needed cancer surgery, you needed it right away. But biopsies were even put on hold. Colonoscopies were on hold. So there were undiagnosed colon tumors that are now emerging. But 2021 and beyond, these surgeries are starting to be to get scheduled again. There's an explosion of cases that's happening in 21 and it's going to continue on for the next five years, I feel. And this is a great time, a great pause, if you will, in healthcare, and a great time to reset healthcare as we know it today. Hence the title of my book. Well, and since you mentioned the book, let's go to that. And by the way, for you who are viewing or listening, we'll link to the book in the show notes on the Shift Shapers online website so you can pick up a copy easily. One of the first things you talk about in the book is avoiding what you call the patient trap. What is the patient trap? Why is it significant? The patient trap is, you know, you develop a condition as a patient. You go see your primary care physician. And frankly, you know, if your condition warrants it, they refer you to a surgeon. And that relationship, that surgeon referral, if you will, is not being made necessarily based on the cost of care, you know, whether the surgeons in network, the the facilities in network, the anesthesias in network. And more importantly, it's not being made on the basis of surgical outcomes. It's being made more on the basis of Oh, this is a guy I play golf with, or my referral nurse has a list of orthopedic surgeons that we've been referring to as habit. And the result has been this. Patients are getting surgery they don't need at an alarming rate. So depending on specialty, 15 to 30% of surgeries that are being performed today are unnecessary, have not been peer-reviewed. Patients are suffering from having unnecessary surgery and suffering from complications of unnecessary surgery, and patients are getting referred to surgeons that don't necessarily have the best outcomes. The result is they're having surgery, they're having revision surgery, the wrong size implant was put in, they needed revision surgery for that, now they've got scar tissue, they've got to deal with scar tissue issues, they've got to deal with infections. It's just a mess right now. We've had a couple of guests recently talk about this in terms of of musculoskeletal. Is that kind of the big area where we're seeing most of these unnecessary surgeries, or does it cross into other areas as well? It certainly crosses into other areas, but just to give you an, an inkling, I was talking to 
an orthopedist in his state, large state. And he said to me, Sanjay, you, you know, you won't believe this, but more than 50% of the orthopedic procedures done in my state are unnecessary, and they're mostly in spine. And if you look at the costs of surgical care, you know, musculoskeletal is number one, primarily, but it also crosses into other specialties as well, David. You know, let's look at cardiac catheterization. You know, more than 50% of cardiac cats are normal. So are we doing a lot of unnecessary procedures that we don't need to do, that we need to, we need to better evaluate the patient before having the procedure? Probably the answer is yes. And I think we're going to come to a time when these cases, all surgeries that are non-urgent, will need to be peer-reviewed. Multiple surgeons will have to say, you need this surgery before you can have the surgery. And I think that's definitely a good thing. Now, you point to a number of common surgeon and medical facility myths. I'd like to kind of examine them one at a time in the book, because I, I think they're, they go hand in hand with this problem of creating this unnecessary raft of surgeries. And the first is what you call name brand facilities. These are not always better, are they? Yeah. And, you know, it's true because when you go to a quote center for excellence, it's very hard to know who the surgeon is in that center. Is it a surgeon who does a lot of those in terms of volume? Is it a surgeon who just finished his fellowship and is first year out and just getting his feet wet? Is it a surgeon who's very adept, who's done hundreds, maybe thousands of these procedures with great success rates, great low complication rates? Or is it a surgeon who is older, who didn't keep up with technology, who learned the new technology more recently not as adept, having more complications. How is a patient supposed to, you know, traverse this, uh, this healthcare maze? There's just no way. And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now back to our discussion. Well, and that takes us to the second myth you talk about, which is people doing online research and trying to make decisions that way. What are the perils there? Well, if you go online and you go see a surgeon and you go on their website, what do you see? You see there a picture of their face. You see a picture of their team. You see their credentials in terms of where they went to medical school and locations of where they are and where they operate. But what's seriously lacking is, doctor, how many have you done? What's your success rate? What's your complication rate? How does it compare to your peers? This is so vital, David, so vital. And that kind of goes hands in hand with, I I suspect if you've got them, on your website, you're also going to show awards and ratings. Are, are those all meaningless or are they only tangentially meaningful? Where would I rank those if I were like studying somebody? 
I would rank them very low. And I think when you're talking to a surgeon, you need to have their outcomes data the past year, the past two years, not their lifetime data, but you need to know, you know, gosh, how many gallbladders did you do last year? How many, you know, bile duct injuries you had? How many patients had so much bleeding, had to open the abdomen to get the gallbladder out? And how many people needed transfusion? These are difficult questions for patients to ask, difficult to even understand the answers, but there, there's certainly resources for that. Well, but, you know, I don't know that I'm necessarily smarter than the average bear, and I just understood all of the things that you were talking about. Should that data be made public? I think it should. I think we're going to get to a point where the public will demand that this more transparency in terms of quality reporting. It's a good thing all around. And, you know, this helps surgeons as well. So it helps lower their malpractice risk. And the same thing happens with surgery centers and hospitals as well. It lowers their malpractice risk. When they see cases that have already been peer-reviewed by multiple surgeons and they all agree that this patient needs surgery or doesn't need surgery, it's a good thing. It lowers your risk. It lowers your malpractice premiums. I think it'll happen over time. It's eventual and it's absolutely necessary. Well, because people are chasing price, but in an inverse way to the way they do in other markets there. And this is one of the last things that you talk about in these myths is that there's this myth, you and I have discussed it at meetings that we've attended together, that higher cost procedures are better, that they provide better outcomes and lower post-surgical infection rates and all of the things that you just, all the complications you just mentioned. But that's not necessarily the case at all, is it? There's a complete no relationship. There's a entirely a uh, completely price and quality are completely unrelated. And you can have high price with high quality. You can have high price with low quality. You can have lower price with low quality and give low price with high quality. We're all trying to achieve lower price with high quality. But the systems have to be mission central and primarily focused on quality alone initially and truncate with pricing. In other words, find those solutions, find those surgeons, find those surgery centers and hospitals that have the best quality. And those that are too pricey, you basically have to truncate those options and not show them. And that's the way you're going to reform the market. Oftentimes, when we're looking at the agency and other places at cost and quality, one of the things that we do note is that oftentimes with higher quality and higher metrics, the cost goes down because these folks are doing more of these procedures and they don't have the readmit rates that other places do. And so the overall costs come down. And yet people just, people don't chase quality. How is that going to change? How are we going to get people's minds wrapped around the fact that they've been chasing the wrong animal? Well, they have to be educated, right? So it's going to take a personal assistant, a concierge that will handhold the patient uh, through the process that will, you know, hopefully a system that has a medical record distribution platform such that all HIPAA compliant, all safe and secure, maybe with blockchain, but we need a system where you're told you need surgery, a concierge handholds you, uploads your records to the cloud, and then sends them to multiple surgeons all within your Blue Cross plan or your United plan or your Cigna plan or an open network if that's what you have. All, you know, looking at your case, validating necessity, putting in their treatment options, 
and putting in their metrics in terms of how many they've done, success rates, complication rates, uh, and a system by which you can understand that. And the, and the concierge will be integral to educating the consumer. You know, it's all about creating a consumer that's well-educated, well-informed, making good decisions. It's a win-win. It just makes a ton of sense to us. How do you get the patients past the notion that the concierge is working on behalf of the plan in trying to drive down cost at any expense writ large versus the concierge is in my corner and trying to help me find the best care and the price will follow or it won't. How do you get past that cynicism that a lot of patients have? Because it's been so opaque for so long that folks aren't, I don't think today, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I'm not sure if today people are really primed to believe the former rather than the latter. Well, well, this is going to be integral. The, The concierge service cannot be part of the health plan. That's number one. It has to be independent and it has to work on behalf of the patients. And that comes with time and experience. So once they've experienced, you know, they've gone through a colonoscopy and the concierge is telling them what the adenoma detection rate is, that is how often does a gastroenterologist see find a tumor, because there's a certain rate above which you should be as a gastroenterologist. But all of a sudden, patients start to understand and they realize this concierge is actually educating me about something like adenoma detection rate. And there you create a bond. And once you create that bond, you create trust and it just takes time. So would it be a motif where I would be able to buy this when I needed it? Or do you envision these being subscription models if the patient's going to come in the front door and it's not going to be tied to the employer plan? I think initially it has to be tied to the employer health plan simply because of volume. Uh, You know, volume of surgeries drives providers, drives surgeons, drives surgery centers and hospital in terms of engagement. And I think initially it's going to have to be a B2B play business-to-business, going to self-insured health plans. I think eventually it'll be business-to-consumer. It's just a matter of time. And so while it's B2B, will it be kind of like a mandatory referral kind of a thing, like a precursor to getting cleared to go get the surgery? So you you funnel patients who have these these, need for surgery into these concierge folks? So what will be mandated is that you have to use the platform. But the ultimate choice of who you want to go see and who you want to have operate on you will be left to you. Patient choice is extremely important. We just want to give them the tools to make smart decisions. What are we talking about in terms of deltas on spend, if, if you have a rough number in mind? In terms of savings, potential yes. savings? Yeah. Potential savings are $3,500 per procedure on average. Now, obviously, you're not going to save that on a colonoscopy, but you, know, you have your higher acuity cases that offset the lower acuity cases, but on average, a $3,500 spend, and we're talking about a surgeon fee, anesthesia fee, and facility fee all combined, I think that's very plausible. Do you have any data yet on readmission rates and, and the, the impact that this kind of a motif would have on lowering readmits? Readmission rate is something that, that I talk about a lot. Patients don't understand what that is. I mean, that's what's being touted as a quality measure, but you know, readmission can also be from, you know, having chest pain uh, postoperatively, completely unrelated to the surgery, just simply because they weren't properly counseled and properly managed prior to the surgery. So 
I'm not sure what patients understand about readmission rate. I mean, it's a, it's a nice quality measure that the market is using today. But, you know, the quality measures that need to be used and need to be procedure specific. That is, you know, you're having an aneurysm. It's about to be clipped. Well, doctor, how many have you done? How many ruptured in your hands? How many people have died uh, with that kind of aneurysm? Those are the metrics. Those are the meaningful metrics that patients need to have. So we've got about a minute and a half left. As, as you look into your crystal ball, how do you see this rolling out in terms of time? Are, are we talking about something that we might see broadly used in the next couple of years, or do you think it will take a longer time period than that? It's going to happen much faster than you think, and you, you can imagine. You know, there are Fortune 100 companies right now that are embracing solutions like this and coming to the masses, and there are also companies that are developing new health plans that are permeating through the marketplace like wildfire. This is definitely the new frontier. It's the quality frontier, if you will. Well, it's certainly about time, and that's a, that's a great place to end our conversation. We hope you'll come back in fewer than four years this time. So write another book, and I'll have, I'll have another reason to bring you back. If you have not picked this book up yet, it's called Resetting Healthcare by Dr. Sanjay Prasad. It's a great read. It's not a huge book, but it's chock full of information that will be useful to you and also help you advise your clients on what they ought to be looking at and how they ought to be going about moving towards quality for their employees. Sanjay, thanks so much for coming back and for sharing your expertise. It's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Dave. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. A lot of fun. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.